The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. What have you been up to? It's time for another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour podcast version. And this is an interview that was recorded in the home of Johnny Pizza. This interview was done by my wife and I. And we record the life story in part of Mr. Johnny Pizza, owner and operator of the Hoboken Cafe in Marietta, Georgia. The Hoboken Cafe is named after Johnny Pizza's hometown, Hoboken, New Jersey, which is significant for a number of reasons, one of them being it is the birthplace of Frank Sinatra. Little did Johnny Pizza know he would go on to work for both Frank Sinatra and his son, Frank Sinatra Jr., you're going to find that Johnny Pizza is a natural storyteller. This interview is going on two years old. It was recorded in August of 2016. It continues to get comments from people who listen to it. He's a wealth of information about a number of things, including the classic stars of the golden era. There's a lot to learn from Johnny Pizza. It's a very interesting story, and I hope that I get to have another interview with him someday. I do believe there may be a part two with Johnny Pizza. He's seen and heard a lot, and it's our pleasure to present this fascinating interview for you. I hope you enjoy. In Daytona Beach, Florida, we were down in the hotel room of Terry Woodson. We were doing an interview with Terry Woodson, and he asked us where we were from. And we said, well, we live in Georgia. And he said, you need to look up Hoboken Cafe. There's a man you need to look for, Johnny Pizza. And I said, okay, so we go, and what do we say to him? And he said, just go in there and say Terry Woodson. I said, that's it? He said, that's it. I said, what, well, what else? And he said, that's it. So here we are today. We're sitting down with Mr. Johnny Pizza. The Hoboken Cafe is in Marietta, Georgia, and anyone who goes in there, you're going to see all of these photos, and each photo tells a story. Well, now we get to sit down with the man himself. We're going to hear a lot of stories but a lot of different people, a lot of events. But the story begins in the, the actual Hoboken of Hoboken, New Jersey. Hoboken, New Jersey is the home to a lot of things. The famous Maxwell House Coffee, right across the river from New York. And the man who was the greatest and is the greatest entertainer, Frank Sinatra. Johnny Pizza, you come from Hoboken. Yes, I come from Hoboken. Quite a famous little town, and being born and raised there, my grandfather came to Hoboken in 1904 and settled there with his family, and never knowing that that family was going to be part of a great city that had so many lovely, wonderful things, historically, industry-wise, entertainment-wise, it was kind of amazing for me as I started to learn about all of these things in my early teens to be a part of a culture that in today's standards is just not found in many places anymore. So Hoboken is quite an interesting town. Of course, Frank Sinatra came from there, and people came from all around the world, believe it or not. In, uh, they landed at Ellis Island in New York City's New York Harbor, of course, and uh, many had to pass through Hoboken to get to where they were going to be settling from wherever they came from. So that's where this story begins, from a little town from Hoboken, New Jersey. And I'm just a little kid who came from Hoboken 
and made good. <laughs> when somebody says Hoboken, you have a lot of attachment. What's the first thing that pops into your head when somebody says Hoboken? Family, food, trust, people that grew up there, you know, were your friends, diehard friends. It, it gave you uh, such a, a, a great start to, uh, to something called life. And a lot many people uh, from other rural areas in middle America have some sort of that background. So Hoboken really was quite unique in uh, what it brought to the table of, of life. You mentioned, you said, there was a culture there that is not found so much anymore these days. So what would you say the culture of Hoboken, New Jersey was like when you were growing up? Oh, marvelous. <laughs> In one word, marvelous. It was, just, it was magical. You know, as a, as a little kid walking down a street or running down a street or uh, going up to the waterfront and seeing these huge buildings across the river and, and not knowing what they really meant. Umpteen years later, of course, you come into this, this vast uh, idea of what that really is all about. But Hoboken growing up and being a part of that, that culture. You know, you go through the tunnel in New York City and uh, you, you have everything at your fingertips, everything from around the globe. Now, mind you, back in the early uh, turn of the century, we didn't have trucking. We didn't have transportation like we do today. Back in the days when you needed coffee beans from Brazil, they were imported and they were sent to you by ship. You wanted some of the beautiful silks. They came from India, all shipped on ocean liners and boats of their time, steamships. And where did they dock? They docked into Hoboken, New Jersey, not New York City. They came to New York. The origin was New York, but the where, it, where the boat actually pulled into harbor was into Hoboken, New Jersey. And there's a reason for that. The reason those boats came into Hoboken is because we had the Erie-Lackawanna train terminal there. So what happens, if you had all of these goods coming from around the globe, they would land into New York, actually into Hoboken, and then they had to go to the other 50 states. So with that being said, if they landed in New York City, they would then have to put them on a little boat to bring them across the river to get on that train. So Hoboken was very key to all of this this mercantile exchange. And it all originated in Hoboken, and it's, it went out to the other states around the, around the Union. So that in its own history back in the early days is, is amazing to me. I was a big railroad buff when I was a little kid. I enjoyed seeing that and the trains coming in and out of the, uh, the, the stockyards. So um, it, it had quite, a, quite an impact on me. Transportation had quite an impact on me, which is going to be in a later segment of this mm -hmm. story. But that's what it was to, uh, to be growing up in Hoboken with that end of it. The family end of it, of course, when we were children, we came from families that were very, very tight-knit, you know. We had every ethnicity in our town, whether it be Spanish, people from Spain. We had Puerto Rican people from Puerto Rico. We had Yugoslavians. We had the Jewish background. We had Italian background, of course. And uh, Germans were very, German families were very big in, uh, in Hoboken. And that's where the food came into Hoboken. A lot of these people came from their little towns across the globe and opened up their little stores, bringing the most delectable food to this little city. And then not only to Hoboken as the little city, it went into the rest of the United States as well, because a lot of people that were passing through Hoboken for one reason or another, the Holland American line was a big transportation 
steamship line at the time where people would be coming and going on luxurious trips in the 40s and the 50s and 30s too. But, you know, all of that food had to be prepared somewhere. And a lot of those people that settled in Hoboken wound up getting jobs on the steamships mm -hmm. and creating those delicious foods, not only for the people of Hoboken, but the United States, but also on ocean liners that got to taste all that stuff, too. Now, having, having grown in this absolutely incredible atmosphere that you are describing, what do you think was the most important lesson or the most important thing that you've learned growing up and that has served you the most trust your life trust 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 be who you are and do what you say you're gonna do and i don't think you'll ever have a problem in your own life don't ever don't ever try and be something that you're not and that's my one of my mottos coming from Hoboken. That's I learned that from my parents. I learned that from my friends. I learned that from the, the people I grew up with. They were all very stand-up characters. And believe me, if anyone knows what a Damon Runyon character is, that many of them came from Hoboken. All of those storytale people. These were real larger-than-life people that could have been in any one of those movies throughout the years when you saw, you know, funny characters. But through all of those characters, they all had a true good meaning in life. They, they brought something positive to the table. They gave you something to walk away with in a, in a way that you could live the rest of your life as a good, good human being. And I think some of that's lost in today's world, but that coming from Hoboken, anybody you ask from Hoboken, they'll tell you that coming from Hoboken gave you a very good foundation for your future. Do you remember what your your thoughts were when you were a teenager, let's say? What did you want to do in life? Everything. Everything. There's nothing that you can't conquer in this world. It's just, as a teenager, I grew up around, you know, very, I don't want to say impoverished, but Hoboken, you know, really wasn't a very popular town in that time frame. In the early 70s, you know, the, a lot of places were going bankrupt. Big companies were moving out of Hoboken to go into the more lucrative areas, tax-wise and what have you. So growing up in the late, early to late 70s in my teen years, things weren't so good in Hoboken. The bar, there was a bar on every corner, and half of them were not busy. Restaurants were going out of business. And coming from the culture of doing good, here people were doing good and they were getting penalized by it because they were moving out and not having um, that stability that has been in Hoboken for many years. But as the time fared, the people that had those values, the values never changed, whether they had 20 people in the restaurant or 200 people in the restaurant, the workers, the cooks, they all put their 100% into what they were doing at the time. And that's what, what was a great thing to be a youngster seeing and giving me some good foundation for the rest of my life in the things that I took over and endeavored through the years, which is just truly remarkable to myself, even when I just think back on some of the things of the last 30 years of my life. I know you have been in the limousine business, and I know you have a very interesting story about that. We were going to ask you to tell it to us. Well, that goes back again to Hoboken in my early days, being and loving the transportation and shipping and what have you. As a little boy growing up, going to Catholic school, of course, you had to go by the Catholic church every day to get to school. And on days, there was these big, big black cars, 
pulled up in front of the church, and of course they were for funerals at the time. But I was always mesmerized by automobiles. I loved automobiles. So uh, as a little kid driving around and getting a chance to see New York City, you saw or even more of these fancy cars. And when you went into New York City, there was a, a plethora of, of different vehicles and one more nicer than the other. We didn't have the internet back in those days where you could Google and see what uh, <laughs> what vehicles are the latest models out there. So, But you relied on newspaper articles and what you saw. So here I was, a little kid, going past the church, seeing these big, fancy, shiny cars. It turns out to be that one of my schoolmates' father owned the funeral home. And what we would do on the way walking home, we would stop at the garages where those cars were coming back from the funerals and they needed to be washed. So as a little kid, I started washing these cars. And I'm talking about my early teens, like was, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, taking care of these vehicles and, you know, dreaming someday of, of being able to be one of those big New York transportation people carting, you know, the people that needed this type of transportation, whether it be actors or comedians or entertainers, uh, uh, moguls in the industry, never knowing uh, that uh, umpteen years later I'd be doing that. So that gave me a, a little something to look forward to in what would become my career. Fast forward, we go to uh, the early 80s, and I'm getting out of high school, and I decided to get into the transportation business. So what do you do? You go out and you find a car and uh, you get involved. The first job that I had with my limousine was driving Pat Cooper, a comedian named Pat Cooper. I uh, had gotten my um, car service name and what have you together and got right out there. I went to the Waldorf Astoria. I was over at the Friars Club in New York City, just waiting outside for these entertainers to come out and... I got introduced to Pat Cooper. He actually was doing a show in Hoboken, New Jersey. We had the Italian Festival in 1983, and they needed somebody to do transportation to pick him up and bring him to the festival. He, Henny Youngman, Don Cornell, we had several entertainers coming in for this big Italian festival, which was one of the first big Italian festivals we had in the city on the waterfront at that time. It was just going through a, a gentrification of getting uh, beautified from what it once was in the early 70s, as I said earlier. So uh, here I was driving Pat Cooper for the first time. That opened up the door to uh, working with some of his agents. And again, here was where the trust came in. What happened in the car, if you could be on time, that's the biggest important thing that these people respected, that if they needed you with the time they said they needed you, you needed to be there. You couldn't be stuck in traffic. <laughs> that's an inside joke, folks. But I did. My handshake was my word, and that's how I, I did it back when I was 18. And I'm just turning 50 a few months ago, and I still stand by that handshake. But my early days with the transportation limousines opened up the door to transportation at an, a more executive level as I grew with it. And that opened up the door to more celebrity, more, um, more people in the, in the, in the uh, business industry. And before you know it, I was taking care of people going on private jets and flying around the world. And as time would have it and, 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 and luck would have it, these people took a liking to me. So I became not only a person providing transportation for them, but a lot of these people trusted me to the point that they welcomed me into their families and they had a party or a wedding. I wasn't going to their weddings as, 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 as their car or their driver. I was going as their friends. So that really meant a lot to me 
in my early days in the next generations of what I did mm-hmm. and uh, who I've been with. <laughs> so, You mentioned Pat Cooper there. I saw on the, the Hoboken Facebook page that you had he had called and you talked to him for a long time. Who's the real Pat Cooper? Oh, Pat Cooper's a beautiful man. He's he, he's very gruff on the outside, and he's very, very funny of telling uh, telling life is as it is. And Pat is, is really dead center on all of that. He's a, a sweet, kind, gentle soul. When I had the pleasure of living in Las Vegas, I was um, able to, uh, again, get close with his family and embraced he, his wife, Patty. Patty Joe is his daughter. And actually, when I first moved to Las Vegas, it was Pat Cooper's wife who welcomed me to her home the very first day we got there. And she says, John, I want you to feel home here. And I want you to know if there's anything that you need here in Las Vegas, please don't ever be afraid to ask us. And that opened up such a lovely experience to be welcomed into a new state, a new place, by you know people that are very busy with their lives they they don't have time to to just be welcoming new people but pat cooper himself was just quite a extraordinary individual funny he told it like it was and there was humor in that there was a lot of humor in what he would say he comes across very gruff and very arrogant and very angry he was also dubbed the angry comedian for many years but in his anger he told the story and it was funny and that's what people loved about him And I got to see that on the inside, that he wasn't really that angry. (laughs) You just mentioned a minute ago that you moved to Las Vegas. How how did that happen? Why did it happen? How did that happen? That happened because you have to grow. And what happens when you get to a certain point in your life and your business is what it is, your family is what it is, you have opportunities. And I believe in life, if you say no to an opportunity, you never revisit that offer ever again. And at the time, Jilly Rizzo, who was a very dear friend of myself as well as my family, had been saying to me for many years, because I was taking care of the uh, Sinatra transportation along with everybody else in the Sinatra industry at that time, would say to me, John, you really have to come west. You would really do very well out there because you're a man of your word. And and we need people like you in those areas because we can't find that. So uh, it took me about five years before that really sunk in. And uh, I believe it was 1996 that I decided to head to Las Vegas. And at the time, I chose Las Vegas because Los Angeles really wasn't the entertainment mecca as much as Las Vegas was. So there was a lot more work going on in Las Vegas that was needed for my assistance. So when I got to Las Vegas, of course, uh, Jilly had put me in touch with the people over at the Desert Inn Hotel. And uh, they were having a lot of trouble with their transportation at the time. They were having people with missed calls, missed at the airport. People were waiting at uh, outside restaurants. The car wasn't showing up in time to bring them back to the Desert Inn. So uh, when I came on board over there, they uh, didn't have one missed call when I got involved with them. And that lasted for about two years. And that lasted for two years because Steve Wynn bought the hotel at the end of that two-year period. Uh, to bring it and knock it down and make the big, beautiful Wynn Hotel that's there now. So uh, I had a two-year time there. And in that two-year time, I uh, had been very, very involved with other entities, such as uh, I became the uh, the uh, personal assistant to the lieutenant governor of the state of Nevada in my circle of what I brought to the table in transportation and bodyguarding. 
And I got a phone call one day from Frank Sinatra Jr., who was going to be appearing in town. Of course, the Frank Sinatra Sr. had already passed. That's a whole nother story. We will get to that. We'll get to that. But uh, this is almost, we almost like skipped over (laughs) a little bit. But Frank Sinatra Jr. had called me up and uh, was going to be in town doing the Frank Sinatra slot machine introduction. And he asked me to come on board for a week and take care of the stuff that he needed, as I did for his father and for so many other entertainers of the time. That's where I had the... Again, we were talking about opportunity. I left New Jersey to go to Las Vegas for this opportunity of being able to do transportation coordination at a larger scale. That became a larger scale. Then I got involved with so many other entertainers that, that we provided transportation for and bodyguarding with with Merrill Kellum, Sergeant Merrill Kellum retired, Atlantic City Police Department. He was my partner in that. And through he, he provided the protection side of it, whereas I provided the transportation side of it. So between the two of us, we had that, that section of the uh, industry tied up. Jilly's ins- insistence of going out to Las Vegas and getting involved with the entertainers, fast forward into the uh, political world, then, of course, into Frank Sinatra Jr. asking me to come on to work for him are all stepping stones of where you're building your business and your life. And the trust value, as we said earlier, and the uh, opportunity, if you don't say yes to those opportunities, they will never be there for you again. And that's where, to answer your question about how did I get to Las Vegas, is when someone says, I have an opportunity for you, the word is not no, it's yes. Try and get into it if you can. Okay, we're going to take you back a little bit, back to New York, when you had started, already you had started the business with the limousines and Pat Cooper. And then tell us a little bit about, we skipped a little bit this part about, how did you get from having one limousine, driving just a few people, and getting to the position of having a lot of contacts, growing your business, growing your name and your reputation in the in this field. Well, that goes back to, again, trust and doing what you're asked to do. You know, when you have people flying in from all around the globe needing transportation and you say you're going to be there, you ask the question that, how did I get to that plethora of being where I was with having 13 stretch limousines at one time? Well, that all becomes on supply and demand. People are coming into New York City, they need transportation, and one person says to the next person, call Johnny Pizza, call Johnny Pizza. Oh, Johnny Pizza takes care of my transportation. So it was a lot of word of mouth. So it was more word of mouth than anything else. I did no advertising whatsoever because this isn't a circle of area you can advertise. You can't just put an ad in the variety and say, we have a limousine service and all the stars coming to New York call Johnny Pizza. You know, that's unheard of, of course, mm-hmm. making a joke mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. But the word of mouth is really what put me on the map with my business, mm-hmm. taking care of these people individually. And that's where you have your pitfalls and your heights in business because, you know, I can't be in 13 stretch limousines at the same time. So you really have to find the key people that are going to be able to represent you at the level that you expect them to be providing service for your, your clients. That was a whole uh, different, difficult situation to conquer, but we were able to do it back in those days. We, 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 we searched and found people that were very, very trustworthy, and I was lucky enough to have them on board in, in, in the, the things that I was involved with. 
But the word of mouth got around to the different celebrities, Milton Berle, Henny Youngman, of course, being a comedian. We go to the Friars Club, and he invites me for lunch. John, come to the Friars Club for lunch. Well, we're sitting with, with, you know, the biggest entertainers on earth all came to the Friars Club. And you talk about Pat Cooper, you talk about Henny Youngman, you talk about Milton Berle. Henny would, would be sitting at the table, and uh, uh, Joan Collins came by the table. And, hello, Henny, how are you? And he goes, oh, hi, this is John. This is my driver. If you ever need a limousine, he's the man to call. And, of course, we exchanged cards, and their agents would happen if they were there. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, maybe not a day or a month or a year or two years goes by, but all of a sudden I get a phone call from somebody saying, Joan Collins needs a ride, and we heard that you have, uh, you know, quality service. And, bam, that's how it started to, to, to build. That's, that's when I was 21, 22, and 23 years old, we're talking. Back in those days. What was the moment when you said to yourself, okay, now I've, I've made it. I'm finally, you know. I haven't been there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, back in your 20s, you know, when you, you had the, the business, the limousine business. When was the moment when you felt, okay, I got to that place that I was aiming to get to? That's that's a, a rough question because there's so many different things that come to mind at different points of the of my life at that period, later on and even later. But at the the the, the turn of that was, believe it or not, the opening of Trump Tower in New York City when he opened up that first building on 58th Street, 57, 58th, and Fifth Avenue, and I got a phone call from the man who was the architect who built that building. And I didn't know who he was at the time. I just got a phone call that they were going to the opening of the uh, Trump Tower building. And they heard that I, I was, you know, one of the A-list people that they would call. And I picked this gentleman up, brought him to the building. And, of course, a lot of the entertainers that were already living in New York City were there that I got to know. And I was invited into that evening, which is really remarkable. That was a turning point for me when I, when I saw all of these people that were larger than life, not just in the entertainment field, but in every gamut of life walking through those doors that night. So that was a turning point for me to say, wow, I, I really must be somewhere. With all the people that you met, was there anyone that you would say that you were the most in awe of? Oh, Sinatra. <laughs> yeah. And tell me about the first time that you, Johnny Pizza, encountered Sinatra. Well, that's a twofold question. The first time I encountered Sinatra as the as the being was as a little kid hearing about this fabled guy called Frank Sinatra around Hoboken and Frank Sinatra this and Frank Sinatra that and you know Frank Sinatra was born on this street. No, Frank Sinatra hasn't been to Hoboken in thirty years and and I've heard this name Sinatra, Sinatra, Sinatra as a baby growing all the way up into my teenager years and then finding out that he was one of the greatest singers around. He was Italian. He was from Hoboken. Being from Hoboken and hearing all of this, you know, you're kind of in awe of that as a youngster. It's like, you know, any young, one of the, it's any one of the young kids of today's time saying, gee, you know, uh, Britney Spears comes from my hometown and, and they're just in awe of that. So, uh, never, never ever thinking I'd meet this gentleman, but, uh, it was amazing to hear about him and hear all of the things that he did philanthropically and appearing at Madison Square Garden to 20, 25,000 people at a time. As a youngster growing up in that, hearing these things about this larger-than-life man was kind of amazing. So uh, umpteen years later, I'm now in my uh, early teens, I'll say 18, 19. <laughs> and again, Jilly Rizzo, who uh, was a personal friend of our family, 
had his birthday party in New York City at a restaurant called Rocky Lee's, which is no longer there, on 52nd Street. And I was told that Frank Sinatra was going to be coming to Julie's birthday party. Julie Budd was there, Vic Damone, Diane Carroll. It's just, it was a who's who of entertainment at midnight at this Rocky Lee restaurant. So here I was, 18 years old, going into this situation with a good friend, comedian. Not too many people know his name, but his name was Morty Storm. Morty Storm III. He was a favorite comedian to the comedians. Didn't hear much about him, but he, this guy, could make Milton Berle go on the floor laughing. Jilly, Sinatra absolutely adored Morty Storm. And Morty Storm said to me, John, Jilly is having his party tonight, and he wants you to be there. So... We get in the car and we get over there at 11.30 at night. And I said to Morty, I said, oh, Sinatra's not going to come here tonight. Sinatra's in Atlantic City. He's got a show at 8 o'clock and at 11.30. He's never going to be here at 12 o'clock. It takes two and a half hours to drive here. So he goes, don't you worry. Frank will be here. He'll be here. So he, lo and behold, the party's going on and everybody's getting up saying tributes to Jilly. And they're singing and then and, and you have uh, the comedians are getting up and telling all kinds of jokes. And it's getting later and later in the wee small hours of the morning, approaching 2, 2.30. And here we are at the uh, the private room in the restaurant. And there's just a stir. There's a beautiful glow in the evening. All of a sudden, it there was an air that came across that room. And I'm sitting with Morty and sitting at the bar. And you just felt something was, was, was I don't want to say not right, but something was happening. And everyone's talking, having a great time and partying. And all of a sudden, Frank Sinatra appears through the door with his lovely wife, Barbara. And there he is. Silver hair, blue eyes, beautiful suit, walks in, and there he is. Everybody is just beaming. These are the celebrities of celebrities. And when Frank walked into a room, you knew it. I was 18. Very amazing. Never thought I'd get to say hello to him that night, but Jilly, again, he was the man. Jilly, of course, as as everybody got settled through the uh, evening after Frank arrived, because that's always a big event, of course, Jilly came over to the bar and he was talking to me for a minute. He goes, come on over. I want to introduce you to Frank. So I said, oh, he doesn't want to meet me. He goes, oh, come on, just come over. I said, all right. So I walk over with, with Jilly to Frank, and of course, Frank was from Hoboken, and I didn't want to say I was from Hoboken, because at that time, Hoboken was really not as, as, as grand as it is today. So if you came from Hoboken, Frank really didn't want to know you. <laughs> so I kind of didn't let that part of my life out to him at that moment. And Jilly brings me over to Frank, and he goes, uh, Frank, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Johnny Pizza. He takes care of all the limousines for all the entertainers when I need him to take them to different places. So he goes, oh, glad to know you. And it was really nice for him to look you straight in the eyes with those blue eyes. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Just amazing. And uh, we kidded around a little bit. And, of course, hello, hello. And then, of course, you get involved with other conversations. And that was my first moments of meeting Frank Sinatra at Jilly's birthday party in Rocky Lee's in New York City. And that was an amazing time. So as the time would pass, Jilly, at any time he was with Frank appearing anywhere, whether it was Atlantic City, Philadelphia, Connecticut, Jilly would call me up and say, John, what I want you to do is just come to the event, 
stay with me, stay backstage, because you never know every time we need something last minute, we need transportation. You can never find a taxi cab. The limousines are all booked that Frank has on his roster, of course. To try and get on Frank's roster at 21 would have been insane. But I was always kept in the background from with Jilly as his ace in the hole. The right if they minute, needed something, the right I was there. Hey, Jilly, I need this. Johnny Pizza could facilitate that for him. So that's how my early beginnings of trust began when I was in my early teens, 21, being around these people and doing what they needed in transportation. So uh, Jilly opened that door for me, and I'm forever grateful. Amazing time. Were you nervous the first time you met Mr. Sinatra? No, I really wasn't. And I'm not really in awe of, of people because I, I believe people are people. Same thing when I met presidents. I, when I walked up to them, I was just being me. I think if you have a certain fright and you're nervous about meeting somebody, you, you tend to put your foot in your mouth. <laughs> so I, in, in, in my early days growing up, I never really looked at a person larger than they really were. I looked at them as just another human being. This guy, this guy, uh, you know, owns a restaurant. This guy over here is, uh, you know, an entertainer. And this guy over here is Frank Sinatra and, and so on and so forth. We just, you know, he was a singer, just another human being, a fascinating human being. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't in awe of him, but I was, of course, just, it, it's, a, it's, it was an amazing moment to be introduced to somebody of that caliber for the first time and it was exciting i wouldn't say i was in awe it was it was exciting mm -hmm. i was excited by that i thought it was fun fun to meet some extraordinary people along the way yeah there've been some very fascinating answers to this question what does frank sinatra mean to you oh frank was remarkable what does it mean to me frank 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 i don't want to say he taught me a lot of things just peripherally in the things that he did through his life, but seeing where he's a guy that came from very humble beginnings and made something of his life sort of gave me that same, that same, uh, ambition to go out there and be something and do something with your life and not just be a part of the, the crowd. Stand out and be somebody different, be somebody special. And as I grew older and learned more about Frank Sinatra, I uh, had more of an admiration for him in the things that he accomplished. Now, many times you hear the, the negative things and things like that. But you know what? Sometimes people are just looking for the things that are wrong in people. And, and people say, well, how could you work uh, alongside a guy that's not as nice to people? And I said, well, how can you say that? Have you ever experienced that? Did you ever have a bad experience with him? And, of course, they would say no, and that would shut them right up. So a lot of people go on what hearsay is. Frank Sinatra raised over a billion dollars in his lifetime for charities. I don't know any multimillionaires today really trying to do that to that magnitude. And not even a thank you. Frank didn't want people to know that he was doing that. A lot of those checks are uns that, that, that were sent out to the, the charities, to, the, uh, to, the, to the, the people that were down on their luck, never knew it was from Frank. They were, they were too humble. To, they, they, they wouldn't take it from him if they knew it was from him. Frank, what he means to me is, is he, he really gave me a good, a good base to strive for better alongside my parents. Of course, my parents were the first ones who, who gave me that good ambition. I don't want to discount them at all. They, they are the, they're the rock of where, where I am today. But seeing someone else from the little hometown you're from become somebody like Frank Sinatra, that's pretty neat. 
pretty neat to uh, to aspire to. And I aspired that my whole life. Now, I wasn't going to be a singer. I wasn't going to be a comedian. But I enjoyed the transportation. So I was the best transportation coordinator that money could buy at the time. And still is. <laughs> when and how exactly did you actually start working for Frank Sinatra? Was it at one of these concerts that you were going with, with Jill? Well, it's, 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 it's where I was always involved with the transportation coordination because I was my own limousine service. I kept, I had my own business. I didn't actually work for him. I worked for his organization. So when they needed something to be done, they hired myself along with 20 other people. Because remember back in those days, you didn't have a limousine service that had 20 or 30 stretch limousines. When they had these people, you had certain people that had automobiles individually like I was. I owned only two or three cars at that time. So when they had this one gentleman had two cars, another gentleman had two cars, another gentleman had three cars, those people, because they were hands-on operators, and that was what made it made it very unique because those people... You know, you didn't just apply for that. You were welcomed into that. I was welcomed into that at an early age because of the, the likes of Jilly Rizzo. And when they realized my word was my word and their trust value was built, when they would come into town, I was always the third or the fourth or fifth stretch limousine that was being brought on for that transportation need. So never ever getting to drive Frank as a his personal driver because he had his own guys that were 20 and 30 years with him. That was going to be many years ahead, but I was always in the entourage of the transportation for all of the needs of those people. Although, that's where the business end and the friendship end be, became different. I was no longer just coming on to the, to the event as a driver. I was brought into the event as a friend, and as we needed the transportation needs when that time occurred, I was right there. It was a very unique situation. With driving with Frank personally, of course, in Las Vegas, he had one driver. In L.A., he had another driver. Everywhere he went, he had one person that took care of him, and you were part of the entourage. Mm -hmm. So at different times, those different limousine drivers or owners were not available. That's how you would become the next guy in line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's where I came in later on in life. Yeah, and uh, because we know, and we wanted to ask you about this. Sure, that apart from the the driving service that you were offering, then you you started this friendship with the family, and then you also started working as a as a security. Guard. Correct, providing security through a, a whole other level, and we were curious about that too. When you're in that in that circle. You're not just doing one thing. Yeah. Now, I happen to know how to cook. My grandparents taught me how to cook. My grandmother was a very good Italian cook. When I was a little boy running around those streets of Hoboken, there were all these little restaurants that, you know, when you wanted to have lunch in Hoboken, you didn't bring a little bag of lunch to school with you. Your father gave you 50 cents to go buy a sandwich at the local restaurant, which is maybe across the street from the school. So there was a little restaurant called Mary's Open Kitchen. There was a place called Town Lunch. There was Vinnie's. There was Fiori's. So five days a week, when your parent sent you to school, and I was not the only one, of course, it was all the kids, you know, who had a dollar, who had 50 cents, and you'd go to the place, and it was 40 cents for the sandwich and a nickel for the soda, a dime for the soda. Mm -hmm. So you went there every day at 12 o'clock. You had a meatball sandwich one day. You had a turkey sandwich another day. You had a sausage, pepper, and onion sandwich another day. And all of that was intriguing to me because I loved to cook. 
See, that's a whole nother gamut where we're going to go into Hoboken Cafe. Okay. It's those early beginnings of Hoboken that gave me the roundabout of having so many different facets of what you can do in this lifetime, mm-hmm. whether it be bodyguarding, whether it be transportation, whether it be with food. I was also in the funeral industry for several years when I was a youngster. I was in the, f- the flower business. So uh, all of these different facets, but if you have, if you think about it, all of these different businesses tie together because each like one of these things, right, all fall into each other. And as a little kid growing in Hoboken, you had the flower shop, you had the restaurants, you had the, the funeral home, and everyone knew each other in Hoboken because all the kids went to school with each other. So the parents owned the businesses, but all their children were all together in school. So one day you would go to the flower shop owner's home. Another day you would go to the funeral home. Another day you would go to the, to the restaurant person's home. So everyone talked about their respective deal. And, uh, of course, as a little kid growing up in this, this little town with German food, Italian food, Spanish food, you know, you just, you're walking down the street, you could smell all these delicious things. I was intrigued by that. So my grandparents would show me how they cooked uh, as a little boy. And then when I got into school, the different eateries, I would go there after school and clean dishes for them. And in cleaning the dishes, they were preparing the food for the next day. So I, you know, I kept my eye. I would ask the chef, what do you do with this? And most of those chefs were little old ladies. They weren't chefs with big white hats. They had, they had their little, uh, their little, uh, house dresses on, stirring the sauce and rolling the meatballs and sauteing the peppers. So as a little kid, I was exposed to that, intrigued by that, and space banked those memories for later on in life. So with that, segueing back into the Sinatra era, here I was involved with the transportation end of that peripherally. Jilly calling me up to be at the different events, when we would go down to Atlantic City, of course, some of these beautiful hotels on certain levels of their private rooms where the, you know, the, the VIP rooms would be, there was uh, kitchens right on that same level for these these people to be served, all the high rollers of the casino. Now, Frank, of course, was a guest of the casino because he was entertaining there. But Jilly would call me up and say, hey, John, come on down. And what I would do is I'd bring down all the foods from Hoboken. I'd bring down fresh Italian bread. I would bring down cans of tomatoes. I would bring down different vegetables that are, you know, very exclusive at the time. And at any given moment, we would be at the Golden Nugget on the uh, 19th floor where there was a stove in the hallway of where the service elevators were. So I would be in the hallway in the service area elevator chopping garlic, sautéing olive oil, onions, putting tomatoes into that, and all of these aromas going throughout the hotel. Now, mind you, I was cooking for Frank Sr., I was cooking for Jilly, the the family, any of the entourage, the drummer who was Irv Kotler at the time, Bill Miller. All of these people would pop into Frank's room at any given time, and if he was having something to eat, he'd offer them to sit down and eat. So here I was, 21, 22, 23 years old, Top floor, in the hotel, in the hallway of the elevator shaft, service elevators, creating these gastronomic flavors that are, that are pumping through the entire building. Were you even allowed to cook right there? 
Well, we were because because it was it was a designated area. Designated. There was a whole okay. little kitchenette, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, this little rinky-dink four yeah. burner stove. What happens? You see, in a lot of the hotels, people don't know when you go to the you know the Las Vegas and what have you, the gourmet restaurants downstairs all the way to the coffee shop. By the time that food gets from downstairs all the way upstairs, you want a fried egg or something for breakfast. By the time it goes from the lower level all the way up to these these mm-hmm. big mega properties it 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 loses it mm-hmm. so what these hotels have done for these vip guests they have their own little kitchenettes built into each one of those floors and some of them have them even in the suites and that's where some of these people that are very well to do would even bring their own chefs from if they you know gamblers from china gamblers from korea wherever they came from they would fly into uh, american casinos and they had their own chefs with them, so they needed those kitchens. And the hotels were very accommodating. They wanted these people to spend time and spend their money in their hotel. So whatever it was to make that guest happy, they did. So it was a plus for me because the kitchens were already built in. And when somebody like Frank Sinatra comes in town, and and as much as those gourmet restaurants are great, after a while you're in them every single night, you get tired. And you want to just sit in your room and have a great fresh cooked meal Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's where i came in and as i was saying you take the aromas of frying garlic and onions and it's going through the entire building because the elevator shafts going up and down with that airflow is pumping those flavors throughout the building that it was funny at the time there was an entertainment coordinator director at the golden nugget his name was frankie randall he was also a singer you probably heard of him very nice guy great singer but he happened to be the entertainment director at the Golden Nugget. He came up on the elevator and he goes, Johnny, I just want to thank you. He goes, because you're cooking. He goes, all the restaurants are packed tonight. They all smell your food going throughout the whole building and everyone's making reservations and the, the entire restaurants available in the hotel are book solid tonight. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a funny story. And yeah. as again, a 22 year old kid <laughs> just making a plate of pasta for Frank up in his room mm-hmm. turned out to be we got the whole uh, the hotels, the restaurants sold out. Yeah. For how many years were you with with Mr. Sinatra and his? Well, family? again, it was it wasn't how many years was I with him. It started back when I was 18 years old when I was first introduced to him, and just. From that point on, we've, we've known each other. We've been friends and, mm-hmm. and whether it was for business, whether it was for pleasure, whether it was I flew out to the, the Sinatra golf tournaments in uh, Palm Springs when they had that, it was just a nice, a nice friendship. It was camaraderie. That's the word I was searching for. Mm-hmm. Because when you're around this, these type of people, you know, like you bring up Tom Dreesen. Tom Dreesen opened up for Frank Sinatra for many years. Tom was amongst that entourage, that camaraderie of the, the different comedians, red buttons. Milton Berle, of course, I can remember many a times flying into Las Vegas and Milton Berle wasn't appearing anywhere in town, but he came in town to see Frank. And at any given night, it was Frank Sinatra's table after the show at the hotels when, when Frank wouldn't have, have his dinners. It was the entire strip of Las Vegas would come to Frank's dinner at two o'clock in the morning. And it was Stephen Eady and it was, it was uh, Elizabeth Taylor. It was, uh, of course, Piazzadora's husband owned the hotel uh, at the one we were at this particular time. But it was everybody who was anybody that would show up. What would you say you admired the most in Frank Sinatra when you were looking at him? And, you know, when you had a moment to reflect on his personality, on the way he was, what did you most admire about him? Uh, well, he was a man of his word. If Frank liked you, he looked you in the eye. If Frank didn't like you... 
he had no use for you whatsoever. And he, and if he, he was very good knowing that in the peripheral way that I knew Frank, I could see the people that really wanted to know him because he was such a, a, a larger than life person. They didn't want to know him as the person. Whereas like with myself coming from Hoboken and I'm a straight shooter, when I like somebody, either I like them or I don't like them because you could sort of tell when somebody is there being in your corner and they're really there and they're really not in your corner. Frank had that sense and I kind of through the years got the feeling of, to feel that with other people. There was people that would come up to Frank and, and like, oh, you know, he's such, you know, and these were in the inner circles. I'm not talking about the outer circles, you know, the fan base. I'm talking about people that were well to do themselves and they, they wanted to know Frank just for the bragging rights to know Frank. And Frank recognized that. Frank, in the times that I was able to be around him and very lucky to be around him, that he even accepted my being in the room at the same time. You know, when things like, when, when you're around people like this, they know every single human being in the room. And if you don't belong in that room, you're not there. You, you're not allowed in. You're not asked back. You're not whatever. And the, the remarkable things I've experienced that Frank was admirable to was his sixth sense of knowing when people were good and when they were not good. I admired that a lot in him too. He was able to, to, uh, not be phony. Frank, either he liked you or didn't like you, as I said earlier. He had a way of enjoying the hardworking people. He didn't want to be around the multi-million dollar magnets. He didn't want to be around the hotel owners. He didn't want to be around somebody who was worth a hundred million dollars. He wanted to be with the Joe down the street that was working hard as, as a bricklayer. He wanted to be around the people that were true people doing something good for life. Not saying that the, the business owners weren't doing good for life, but he wanted to be around those people. In This is my interpretation, mind you. He wanted to be around people that were Real people. Authentic, yeah. Authentic. If you owned a restaurant, he wanted to know the owner. If he wanted to know the owner, the waiter. If the waiter came over and was a really nice person, a true person, Frank sensed that. And he and the waiter got to be very friendly, whether it was male or female. You know, you could see there was a bond. Mm -hmm. And it was a beautiful bond of two human beings, whether they were somebody very famous, all the way to the waiter who was just working for however many dollars an hour. It was nice to see that that spectrum mm -hmm. collide. Now, I have a question that's really important to me because you just mentioned Elizabeth Taylor and I'm going uh. to want to ask you about her and then I'm going to let Paul ask the next question. Please tell us about Elizabeth Taylor, such an iconic figure, and you have met her and you've known her. How was she? Very first What time meeting Elizabeth Taylor. Here it is, Las Vegas, 1987. Frank Sinatra is working the two rooms New Year's Eve weekend at the uh, Riviera Hotel. Everybody, again, who was anybody, was in town for Las Vegas New Year's Eve. Of course, everything is sold out. Everything is packed. Everything is, it's just, there's a stir in Las Vegas New Year's Eve weekend that is just, it's just something to experience. So here we were doing the two shows. Frank Sinatra was doing a private show for the ultra VIPs of the Riviera Hotel upstairs in a private showroom which maybe held about a hundred people full orchestra mind you 30 piece orchestra upstairs and an additional 30 piece orchestra downstairs in the ballroom taking care of 5,000 people and how they did it was we had frank sinatra opened uh, the evening downstairs in the ballroom with joey villa as the comedian 
and then P. Isadora doing their, their acts. Meanwhile, Frank Sinatra is downstairs. P. Isadora is entertaining upstairs. P. Isadora got done. Joey Villa went and started doing his comedy act. Downstairs, P. Isadora started to sing. Frank's waiting to sing. Frank's waiting for her to finish singing. P. Isadora finishes singing. Frank Sinatra walks out, does his show. Does his show for those people. They're done with that. P. Isadora's upstairs singing for the people after Joey Villa doing his comedy. Frank's downstairs finishes his singing. P. Isadora finishes her singing. They crisscross in the elevator going from downstairs to upstairs to get upstairs. Mind you, Frank had his piano, bass, and drum people musicians coming from downstairs because his key guys had to be with him of course so now we not only had frank in the elevator we had bill miller we had irv gottler jim hugard going up the elevator as frank is going to his last part of the show and then you had pia zadora coming down with her key guys vinnie falcone and have you down to the lower level to do the, the the balance of that show and it was just an amazing night so here we are at the end of the night it happened to be december the 30th the night i'm discussing what year was it 1987, and it was my birthday. It happened to me my birthday, December the 30th. Here we are, after these two shows and all of this hullabaloo and everybody's running around in the, the pandemonium of, of this wonderful evening. We're in the restaurant. It's called Christopher's Restaurant. Of course, the, the tables are all set up. Frank always had a table set up like at the Last Supper. It was always like 40 or 50 people around the table. And then you had your key other tables. I always sat at the external table with my other security people, Merrill Kellum and Bobby Palmara, what have you. Those people, again, were the key people, but we knew our places. We let those people have the fun that they wanted. So here we are at the uh, hotel in the restaurant, 2.30 in the morning. Everyone's having dinner. And like I said, everybody's there. George Burns was there, Steve, Edie. And these people are all there enjoying their dinner and laughing and drinking champagne. And at the end of the evening, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know anyone knew it was my birthday other than the uh, personal, the security guards that I was there with. All of a sudden, Frank stands up and says, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to wish a good friend of mine tonight a very happy birthday. And I'm looking around the room and say, who else has the birthday just like mine? <laughs> who else is December the 30th? And he goes, Johnny, have a happy birthday. And everybody started to sing happy birthday. And with that, Elizabeth Taylor oh. walks out with the cake on a cart. Oh, my goodness. And that was the first time I met Elizabeth <sighs> Taylor as the answer to your question. So That's it was a very nice. remarkable evening. We didn't have cameras back as we do today of so. that particular night. And, boy, I wish I did. But I do have many more photos from later on after those events from mm -hmm. meeting these different illustrious people. Elizabeth Taylor was a beautiful, beautiful human being. Getting to know her slightly through the years, because, of course, she got older as we all got older. And the times I was able to um, be in her presence was remarkable. She she was a fun person to be able to sit across the table from. Her eyes, the beautiful violet eyes, were just mesmerizing to look into. And to have her in conversation was just remarkable. She was fun. She was loving. And you felt that she really wanted to be talking to you. It wasn't like she was just talking to you because you were sitting in a chair across mm -hmm. the table from her. She uh, went out of her way to be very nice and and I think that was just her being her. 
That was the difference of the people that I was able to have been been around all my life. Everybody was just themselves. That's what made these people so individual and so remarkable. They brought something very special of themselves. They brought their heart. They brought their souls to whatever it was they were they were involved with, whether it was even having dinner or having a show or whatever they did. Elizabeth was really, really neat to meet too. Got to meet her many more times after that, of course, in Los Angeles and private dinners. We'd run into each other at Chasen's. Our family owned a radio station in Los Angeles called K-Rock, this little tiny station that has about 9 billion listeners. It was the number one rock station through the 80s. Very, very larger-than-life rock station in the world, believe it or not. And that happened to be owned by my family. So going out to dinner on a Friday night or a Saturday night or a Sunday night in Los Angeles, one night in particular, here we were, umpteen years later after that event I just told you about with Elizabeth Taylor, we're sitting there and we're sitting with Al Martino and his lovely wife, Judy, Tino Barzi, who was a very big agent at the time, and who comes walking by but Elizabeth Taylor with then husband, Larry Fortinsky. As she walked by the table, she said hello to the 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 Tommy Lasorder and uh, and my cousin as well as then she goes oh hi John how you doing I couldn't have felt bigger than life at that time <laughs> they all looked like how do you know Elizabeth so it was really a, a, a very monumental moment for me yeah. just having Sunday dinner with my family and a few mm. friends <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor now you just mentioned about all these these very special individuals that you've met throughout the years and you were saying about them that they they never tried to be anything else than what they actually were and you actually meant mentioned this at the beginning of the interview you said this is one of your lessons from that you learned from Hoboken but what i wanted to ask you the celebrity world is known for being very superficial and many many celebrities are known for always trying to actually you know, do quite the opposite, to seem something that they are not, in order to be liked, in order to be admired, in order to gain more and more popularity. How do you see things? I mean, you've been... Well, I can answer you that probably in one sentence. That's the difference between a celebrity and a star. You know, we're talking about Elizabeth Taylor, we're talking about Frank Sinatra, we're talking about Barbara Streisand, we're talking about people that are really superstars. They are larger than life. They've made a mark on earth that they're, they're known around the globe by their first name. When you say Frankie, you say, you know, Liz, you say Liza, you say, you know, Milton. These names are just, people know exactly who you're talking about. Maybe not in today's world because the younger generation has no idea who 90% of these people are because of this new internet has stopped the segueing of people knowing of, of who yesteryear was with the present time. Internet stopped all of that. In, you know, all of this, this, this people are able to put headphones on and listen to just what they wanted. When I was a little kid growing up in Hoboken, my grandparents and my mother and father had the radio on. So on the radio, you heard all of these different artists singing, whether it's comedians or singers, they're all doing their thing, yet your grandparents, your parents, and now you as the next generation is three generations hearing what this one individual's doing. In today's world, there's no interaction of yesteryear, and I mean just 10 years ago. You bring up names from 10 years ago, the young kids today wouldn't know who they are because they're so focused on what's in front of them only. 
They listen to what's what what maybe they honed in on on the computer. They listen to that, and then that's it. Whereas when you say stars and celebrities and they're superficial and what have you, yes, everybody's trying to be somebody and get up to that next realm. The people that I was around in that era were already there. They didn't have to prove who they were. They 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 got out and did their thing. That's was the difference of of their individuality and their uniqueness. They didn't have to to try and imitate another celebrity. I don't want to use any names of today, but you didn't have to sound like Frank Sinatra. You didn't have to sound like Paul Anka. These were real people. This Paul Anka was out there belting my way. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. People lined up for days trying to buy tickets for all of those shows. Mm -hmm. Today, you know, you go and you push a button to buy a ticket, and if you got the luck of the draw and you're the first 5,000 people buying tickets, you got them. It's an amazing time we're living in. I loved your answer. I think I was actually longing to hear that, to hear somebody say that, you know. It's amazing. Yeah. As mentioned at the beginning of the interview, kind of the way we found each other was through Frank Sinatra Jr. Peripherally, yes. It was it was a roundabout way, and, and I'm sure you're going to, to to explain how that all sort of come about, and then I will go into that with you. I had done an interview with Frank Sinatra Jr., and it remains absolutely one of the favorite interviews I ever had. And he was so good to, to share so much with our listeners. And it caused me to then want to interview Terry Woodson. And he suggested that we connect. And sadly, Frank Sinatra Jr. is no longer with us. But I like to keep his name out there. I was hoping you could tell us... Who was he? Who who was this man? Frank Sinatra Jr.? Well, that's another, that could be another five-hour show wrapped up in itself, Paul. I had the privilege of, of getting to know Frank Sinatra Jr. very, very closely. When he asked me to come work with him that very first time in Las Vegas, that one-week invite was very pleasant. It worked out lovely. We hit it off very well. Now, meanwhile, I did know Frank Sinatra Jr. peripherally, years before, but I never really got to know Frank, because you see, Frank did not hang out in the same circles that his father did. Frank Jr. really, really stayed with his guys. Frank had Frank Jr. had his group of band members, and I was introduced to Frank Jr. many times, and it was a very nice, hello, how are you, nice to see you again, John, but it never really went anywhere, because I was really busy with his father, and I think that at that time, before I got to really know Frank Jr. and be a part of his world, being around Frank Sinatra Sr., it's sort of like our worlds weren't on the same axis at that moment. So years later, as uh, I kidded with Frank Jr. in his home having dinner across the table, he and I, just the two of us, you know, I said, you know, all of those years that I, I spent around your father, I never got a chance to really get to know you as good as we know each other now. And he had said to me, because, you know, John, all of those years that I saw you around my father, you know, my father had a lot of a lot of people around him and and everyone had their own story. And he goes, I never really got involved with all the external people that were around my father. So he goes, I feel bad that we never really got to know each other before, after my father passed away and we've gained this friendship. But the Frank Sinatra Jr. that I knew was, was an amazing man. He's really, really underestimated by people. He was, was an intelligent individual. 
a loving person. He, he did as much as he could for people. I've seen him as generous as his father to many people that needed help. And he helped so many people do so many things with their lives and, and, and gave them a, a step up. He gave them a, a lift up. I don't want to say he gave them a handout. He didn't do that. He gave them a lift up to where they needed to be. And a genuine guy, a, a man of his word. And he never got out of the background of his father's spotlight. And that's really sad because he was a good singer in his own right. And some of the albums that he created later on that I was involved with, I could see in the studio the love he had for the music. He was a larger-than-life person in his own set of group of people. And it's unfortunate the world didn't get to know Frank Jr. as they did his father. Frank Jr., brilliant, brilliant. Frank Jr. had so many opportunities to be something bigger than just a singer. He loved to fly. He he should have been a, a master pilot. Frank Jr. loved the industry. He could be flying on a plane, and we would see a plane through the little porthole of the window on a private jet, and we would see another plane go by, and he could tell you all about this other plane. It's a two-engine plane, and it had this, and it had that. And I says, Frank, you're so so smart. Why didn't you ever pursue that? He goes, I didn't have time to pursue it. I was doing my career as a singer, as a young 20-year-old kid. We laughed about that many a times. As I got to know Frank Jr. further and further, I realized how intelligent he was. He was very, very astute in knowing everything about music, industry, the making of the songs, the beginning of the song. He was there. He was there when those people recorded those songs, not only his father, but the Ella Fitzgeralds and the Nat King Coles. Frank was a little boy welcomed into those circles of if they were recording in the studio. And Frank was there. Frank lived it. Frank Jr. lived all of these times. He could, should have been the historian to the American Songbook. As much as he portrayed the American Songbook in his own vocal singing through the years, I think the world lost an individual who could have given so much more insight and information to a lot of information that's now lost to uh, the times that he was able to have been a part of. And with that being said, Frank also, his elocution was, was magnificent. He could tell a story. He could, if, if you listen to any of his, 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 his music or if you listen to him in, in any of the, the books that he's been involved with, he can tell a story, bar none. He he narrates absolutely flawlessly. He um, does the not underscore, but he um, when he talks underneath the um, if they're talking about a a song or a movie, he does the underscore in the movie. He will talk in a lot of the new the Sinatra released movies. They have a, a button on the DVD where you can hear narration by Frank Sinatra telling what happened in the studio and things as it was going on. Mm-hmm. And Frank did that, and it really was remarkable. I would sit and sit with him in a lot of those sessions and say, Frank, you missed your calling. You shouldn't be singing. You should be out there telling the the, the American Songbook story, and that could be a whole gamut of interest to people of this this type of music i know people uh, steve tyrell steve tyrell excellent magnificent vocalist 
again, also from Los Angeles area, been exposed to all of these people. He and Frank would get together, and Steve would just be in awe of all of the stories that Frank could tell musically between Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen, all the greats of that time. Frank was a little boy around these guys. And people like Steve Tyrell, who later in life didn't get a chance to maybe be a part of those people because they are gone, Frank was able to segue that with his stories about the song, telling how that song came together. I think that's something that always mesmerized me about Frank Jr., that he was such a wonderful individual and never got the the status of being a superstar like his dad was. Mm -hmm. He should have been right up there with him because he was intelligent and he had everything that could have been something if it was in a different business than singing. He was a remarkable guy. So you started working with him, and of course you started a friendship with him right after Frank Senior passed, passed. away. Okay. Now, how that came about was, like I said, with the uh, with the intro of the slot machine. The Frank Sinatra Senior slot machine was debuted at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Frank Jr. asked me to come and be his personal assistant, which I did. So that one week in, in August, I believe it was 2000, 2000. And right after that, uh, I get a phone call again in October because, John, they loved my show so much and the big orchestra, they are inviting me back. And I need you again. Are you available in August? So I said yes. So I went in and I did that week with him. Then I get a phone call for doing a show at Caesars Lake Tahoe for New Year's Eve of that same year. And in the interim of doing dinner with him one night, he had said to me, John, I've been offered to do a uh, a tour of my father's music in the next six months, and I would like to have you on board if you can do that. And I says, well, Frank, I have to, you know, just look into some things I have going on here in Las Vegas, and I'll let you know. So this was, uh, I want to say, December 29th. So here it is, the 30th, my birthday, again, we're doing a show. And, of course, New Year's Eve is the New Year's Eve show. So at the end of the New Year's Eve show, we're all up in his suite having New Year's Eve cocktails celebrating the welcome new year. And Frank said to me after the noise sort of settled down, he goes, well, John, I need to know if you're uh, going to come and do this this tour with me because I don't know if I could do it without you. Pretty, pretty, pretty heavy. And I turned to him and I said, well, Frank, I happen to be available. <laughs> and that one six-month tour turned out to be eight years on the road with Frank Sinatra Jr., Touring with him. Touring with Frank Sinatra Jr. personally for eight years. And taking care of pretty everything. much everything, including everything. security, cooking. Security, <laughs> cooking. Uh, you know, I actually, uh, you know, spent many, many, many hours in Los Angeles. I had to move from Las Vegas to Los Angeles to take that position on, which I did. Not only was I on the road with him, but when I was... In Los Angeles, it was every single day of the week. We were working on projects. We were working on shows. We were talking about different songs that Frank was had in his songbook to throw into a show. Not that he listened to what I suggested, but we used to talk about it. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this song? What do you think about that song? We talked about what uh, other areas to go into. Of course, the phone rings from all around the world saying they want Frank Sinatra Jr. Not that we went on every one of those phone calls. We, We... Selected. We had the ones that were selected that were best for the for the show, mm-hmm. not for Frank. We wanted to make sure the people that were coming to see the show was 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 worth the uh, the worth the effort to do. Mm-hmm. But dealing with Frank and his entourage, which uh, 
was quite quite an entourage, all of his orchestra band. Frank had a lot of his men on for 30 years. His, his, band, his drummer, Bob Kamel, was his drummer for 30 years. His bass player, Paulie Rostock. You have Terry Anthony. And, of course, Terry Woodson, the conductor. We had all of these people that toured everywhere with us. So not only did we have to make sure we had travel arrangements, which we had a travel coordinator to do that, but once we got out on the road, then I put my hat on. And what my position was when we left with Frank and we got in the car service to bring him to the airport, from that point on, I took over in any of the needs that Frank needed, as well as a lot of the orchestra people. My phone number became sort of like 411 (laughs) <laughs> Anything that needed to be done, who did they call? They called Johnny Pizza. Johnny Pizza, this, my phone would ring off the hook, whether it be my cell phone or the hotel phone. Mm-hmm. There was times that three or four phones were going off at the same time. They're looking for Johnny. Johnny, I need this. Johnny, Johnny, my bags uh, were, weren't delivered today. Where where can we call? And I had to go and make sure all of those things were facilitated. Mm-hmm. And that took that much pressure off Frank Jr. getting the phone call if I wasn't there. Because at that time, he didn't have anybody taking care of all of that. I became what they called the fixer. Frank used to joke around with that. Frank, being very well-rounded, traveling. In London, they used to call people that I, what I did for them was called the fixer. So our inside joke was, here's Johnny. Johnny the fixer's here. So mm-hmm. the inside joke for many years was, here's the fixer. Where's the fixer? <laughs> and I became the fixer because I was the guy who fixed everything that was out of out of coordination. That really was nice, and and I've heard from many people, and I have to tell you, it's really amazing to hear, after the fact that he passed away so tragically, and that'll be another another story we could tell at another time, but to hear from so many people that came out of Frank's mouth, Johnny Pizza was the best road manager I ever had. Mm-hmm. And I didn't hear that, not only from him when he was alive, he used to joke about that, I said, oh, come on, Frank, you've had so many people. He would say, no, no, John, and you know his voice. He was very, very monotone. No, no, John, you were the best road manager I've ever had. That was really something nice to hear. And after he passed away, I heard that from so many other people that, uh, you know, Frank always praised you, John, and it's really something nice to have a good memory of of, of someone that you really adored as, as a person to hear had said nice things about you. Now, I was wondering, in the years when you were also managing the, the security aspect of, of these very important people that you worked with, were there any situations where you really felt like there was danger, where you had to do certain things that would frighten me, let's say, as a girl? One word, who no. Who has never seen a gun or no. anything. I have to tell you, it was kind of funny because I often thought of when would that, when would that moment be? Yes. And through all of the years, whether it was from when I was 18 years old all the way up till now that I'm 50, I have never been in a position where somebody didn't overstep their bounds around these people. And I think that comes with most times when the everyday people that are coming to visit these celebrities and superstars, if you want to call them, they're coming, they're in a joyous mode. We really never had a situation where somebody overstepped their bounds. A, I think people were in a happier time. They were coming to something joyous. They were getting to meet their idol, whoever it might have been, whether it was Frank Sinatra or uh, Elizabeth Taylor or even Pat Cooper as a comedian. Pat had a very big following. None of these people ever had a worry about being stalked. Of course, you needed that security for the sake of whenever that time may have shifted. 
But we didn't really see those times back in those days. Today is a different time. Walking down the street, a regular everyday person walking down the street has to worry about getting shot at for no reason. Not because they have jewelry on or they're wealthy or they're whatever. It's just we're living in very difficult times. Mm -hmm. You throw something in with celebrity. Those days, the celebrities didn't have to worry about somebody attacking them or doing something odd. First of all, like I say, they were having a good moment meeting their idols of whoever they were. And secondly, I think they got to look at the four or five guys around Mm -hmm. the celebrity and they said, well, we better not take that chance. So I was never in a position individually or peripherally to feel threatened. So you were saying someone like Frank Sinatra was able to go into a restaurant, people wouldn't start getting hysterical. Well, of course, again, a lot of times Frank Sinatra is going into a restaurant that's been predetermined. It's never been where he just got out of his car in, in New York City or Los Angeles or Las Vegas and says, okay, let's go to this restaurant. Every time we've ever been anywhere, it's always been prearranged that the restaurant knew we were coming. Okay. One of his favorite restaurants is Patsy's in New York City on in Manhattan. They always knew that he was coming and he had his private room upstairs and he even had a private stairway to go up that he didn't even have to see the guests coming into okay. the, the That's restaurant. What I was going to add. But of course, Patsy's, uh, again, having the greatest food in New York City. Italian-wise, just like we were in Hoboken. I kid around with Sal, the owner, all the time about all the different recipes that uh, I make in my restaurant and he makes in his restaurant. We're always on Facebook going back and forth, kidding each other. But those were other nights, you know, sitting in Patsy's and having, you know, Frank at the table and, um, you know, having the, the, the chef come up from downstairs and be, you know, in awe of, of bringing Frank his, his plate of dinner, his, his veal milanese. Mm-hmm. So it was really uh, a fun time. But no, there was never any times that we felt threatened in any of those situations. It was never where people rushed the table. There was times that people came up to the table unannounced that were fans. But, you know, you, you know, you treated them with caution, with care. And the person who made that most simple was the entertainer. On the times again, I, you know, we go back to Frank all the time through this interview because that was a big part of, of my life of being around these people. People would walk up to Frank and they would, they just wanted to shake his hand or say hello or they loved his music. And he was as gracious as any of the entertainers I've seen in my life welcome their, their fans. There's a couple along the way that weren't as gracious and I won't mention any names. <laughs> but then again, they were just celebrities. They weren't superstars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, the same question that I've asked earlier applies to the to the political area. Because I know, first of all, you've met a lot of presidents. You also worked in the, the same area, but for politicians. I was peripherally in, in the political field for a brief time in Nevada with the lieutenant governor of the great state of Nevada. And that was nice to be a part of. Again, I was doing bodyguarding and personal assisting. And at that point, it was a different group of people. And not that I didn't feel comfortable in it, I did. I just recognized I liked the entertainment side of it better. I was able to meet President Reagan several times in uh, New York and Hoboken, believe it or not. Uh, the St. Anne's Festival that uh, occurs every year in July, the honoring the, the patron saint, St. Anne. We had invited President Reagan to that, and that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother half hour story. But uh, I was a youngster in that. I was 18 years old. 
we were in the St. Anne's Church trying to get the different entertainers who, who we're going to think of for the next upcoming year. And I kiddingly said in one of these meetings on a cold December night in the basement of the church, well, why don't we have the president come? He's, he's touring and he's doing all his uh, campaigning. And everybody laughed at me. The pastor and I went upstairs and we uh, had the letter drawn up and sent it to the White House, not uh, really telling anybody and not ne- not ever expecting the president's well, phone call to say that he's coming to Hoboken. But in that letter we penned, it had it mentioned that Hoboken is uh you know quite a an interesting town with all the industry we think it would be a great town for you to stop on your campaign trail although Hoboken uh, St. Anne's Festival is not a one night festival it goes over seven nights so we know that your vast schedule may not permit you to come one night but in the seven nights that it's available you may have time in your schedule and it being the the birthplace of your good friend Frank Sinatra it might be a nice thing for you to come too so with that, umpteen uh, days later, after that letter went out, we were called to an emergency meeting. The uh, pastor of the church was sitting in that meeting and got done with the business and was on hand. And he goes, well, lastly, I need to let you all know that the letter was sent out to President Reagan to uh, come. Uh, Johnny Pizza kidded about it, but we sent the letter out and we got word from the White House that the president is coming on St. Anne's Day. So that's how I got to meet the president on the first time mm-hmm. on that thing. Mm-hmm. On the that, first time. The first time. You've met him several times? Several times through the years. Mm-hmm. I was invited to his funeral as well at the end, and that was really remarkable mm-hmm. to be thought of one of 400 people in the world mm-hmm. to go to a, you know, a presidential funeral. So with getting back to this, the St. Anne's thing with, with President Reagan, he came to that. And who do you think he had get out of the limousine with him? Frank Sinatra. Wow. It was the first time Frank Sinatra has been back to Hoboken in many, many, many years publicly. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a coup for all of us. That not only did did President Reagan show up, but he also brought his best friend Frank Sinatra, Huge who's event. hometown. And the pictures are in the cafe. You see, you've seen them up on the wall mm-hmm. there, the front way, front page pictures of Frank and, and Reagan standing right there at St. Anne's Courtyard. That was a very, very touching time for me to be a part of. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Not only was it my hometown, it was the church I grew up in as a little kid. Here's the, you know, the, the chief of the, the commander in chief bringing the commander in chief of our own little town, Frank Sinatra, with them. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty interesting time. So, of course, years later, you ask about the presidents. Here we are sitting at Mateo's restaurant in Westwood, California, and I'm with some other local celebrities of their day. Martha Ray, everyone knows Martha Ray from many years ago. And Al Martino, his wife, and what have you, all that everybody's at different tables. Lucio Ball is at another table. Sammy Davis is at another table. And of course, the Reagans came in. And they went table to table to table. And of course, another clandestine moment. Hi, John. How you doing? I was floored. President Reagan saying hello to me. And that opened up the door to having many other times after that with them when I moved to Los Angeles, of course. So the story, I I could go on for hours of each individual story, but that would be an individual segment for each show. (laughs) So your, your involvement in the political area wasn't for a long time. Wasn't, wasn't, it it was only briefly for the Lieutenant Governor. Lieutenant Governor Lorraine Hunt was the uh, Mm -hmm. Lieutenant Governor I worked with in Nevada, who was an a lovely, lovely human being. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from she as well. And I, you know what? You learn a lot from a lot of people that you're around. It just so happens the people that I was around were a little more involved. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 
Now, we saw this photo album that contains so many amazing pictures of you along with, with people who have, if you show their picture somewhere, every picture in the world, people know. Every picture is, is another mo a day in my life. Yes. That's the difference. It's not just an 8x10 glossy someone signs, hi to so-and-so and, you know, you mm -hmm, know sign mm -hmm. the, the buddy, buddy Greco. Yeah. You know, it's uh, every picture that I have up that I'm in is another moment and another story of my life. And uh, the one picture you may have saw, uh, I've noticed when you opened up the first page of that. With Brad Pitt or, no. gosh, I can't even begin to mention all the, the people who appear in this. Ah, right, exactly, Hillary Clinton. Here's a, here's a photo that you opened up the book to was a, a moment that we had a uh, Hollywood salute to Bill Clinton and it was honoring... Hillary Clinton for her run for the Senate in New York. That was back in uh, August of 2000. This particular party was held at my family's home, and we hosted that evening for Hillary Clinton to the tune of 2,000 people on the front lawn. What do you mean in your family's home? How, how, how do these things happen? <laughs> I honestly just... Well, uh, the, the home I'm referring to is the Robert Taylor Ranch, Mm -hmm. which is owned, uh, was previously owned by Robert Taylor. My cousin owned it up until his death two years ago. It's quite an, anom it's, it's an anomaly in itself. This particular home is the last piece of property in all of Los Angeles County that in the Santa Monica Mountains was 112 acres. And that's, wow. you know, you know, a half acre is, is kind of crazy to get a hold of in Los Angeles with a house yeah. and quite expensive. Here's a, here's a property. It was a ranch, horses and all types of animals that were on there. Robert Taylor built this house way back in the late sixties. Our family acquired it in 1974. And going back to the person who owned the house, my cousin owned K Rock radio station and that opened up the door to a lot of charity parties and things like that. What we did was, my cousin was a very philanthropic. Anytime there was somebody in need, he opened up his doors to them. And the ranch was the setting for all of these people's major events. The American Cancer Society, the Pediatric AIDS Foundation, all walked through the gates of that property. And that's a whole, that, 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 that's a six hour interview. <laughs> and the photos from those days, see again, it, it segues from New York to Hoboken to Las Vegas to Beverly Hills to all the different areas that I was exposed to in these 35 years of my business. And the working with Frank Sinatra Jr. brought me to Los Angeles and which brought me to my family in Los Angeles and then being involved with my family's business. And what we would do a lot of time was we would, again, with all these large events, they needed a security, which we had outside security hired, but for the actual property, our family's property, I was in charge of making sure the security companies that were coming onto the property were very much aware of all the ins and outs of the property. I was like the I don't want to say the caretaker. That's not the word I'm looking for. But I was the man they came to when, when the Secret Service came to the ranch. And we walked around the property. And they asked me, what about where does this road lead to? Where does that lead to? I gave them all the inside information of where mm -hmm. 
and what and what was about the property and, and you know, the basement and the roof and where the ladders are and where there's a trap door that no one knows about that, uh, you know, is built in because for, for the beauty end of the house looking beautiful, of course, it's built into a wall. Mm-hmm. So that I expose them to those things. And, you know, it's just the, the stories can go on and on. And on. on. That Too was a, a, a quite interesting. But then again, you know, our family had these events that were like two and three thousand people on the front lawn. I have pictures and I have video of all of these things that we were a part of, but, mm-hmm. which could be hours and hours. I just wish I had the time to coordinate all of that and put that into something that people could enjoy and, and mm-hmm. see what, what uh, nice events there were in this world. Mm-hmm. And still are. There's still a lot of nice things to do, but these are some things that are historical. Yes. You know, how many people say they had the president and the first lady to exactly. their house for dinner? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not only was President Clinton there, but also President Reagan and his wife were there, Nancy. Mm-hmm. They came up to one of the events, and they were very well aware of the property in our family. And again, we go back to everybody knowing each other, everybody having friendly moments with each other. And it really is like living in a little city and everybody knows everybody. Instead of it being my aunt and uncle down the block, it was Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan coming to dinner. It was this one coming to It was all the, the, the biggest Paul Anker walking through the door. I can remember back when I was like 23, I was cooking in, in the kitchen of this large estate and I was making some dessert things called zaples. Uh, in Italian, if you know what a zaple is, that's a fried piece of dough and you put powdered sugar on it at dessert and it's a zaple. It's a, it's a fried dough. You serve it warm. They do it at all the Italian festivals, the zeppoli, zaples, whatever they mm-hmm, call them. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing was I was cooking these zaples in this, the oil. I had all of the dough laid out on the countertop and all waiting for it to rise. And then after it rises, you put it in the, the hot oil. It raises, boils and fries. Mm-hmm. Then you take it out, let it cool off a little bit and you put some powdered sugar on it. And that's the best way to eat that. So this particular day, Jilly was coming over and Al Martino, the singer Al Martino. So I'm sitting there and I hear the buzzer on the intercom. The front gate doorbell rings and uh, the the servant opens up the gate. Up comes the car and out comes the car. These two gentlemen, they walk through the front door around the corridor. And there I am cooking the Zaples. So Perfect timing. I didn't know Al Martino was coming. So Jilly Rizzo walks through the door and he goes, Hey, Johnny, look who I brought to have lunch with us today. It was Al Martino, and Al Martino, it was the first time I met Al Martino, and he goes, hi, John, nice to see you. I heard a lot about your cooking, and I can't wait to enjoy it. That was the first things I can remember of Al Martino, and we became very good friends through the years. We celebrated our different holidays together and different dinners and, and, and things like that. I'm still very much in touch with his wife, Judy, and uh, his daughter, Allison Martino, who has a, a, a magnificent following in Los Angeles, something called Vintage Los Angeles. She's the historian for Beverly Hills. Everything Beverly Hills she is involved with and she is documenting Mm -hmm. all the things. She was a 90210 girl. Mm -hmm. She was the original 90210. She grew up as a Beverly Hills child. She went to school in Beverly Hills. She has quite a great following. If you ever get a chance to look that up, it's Mm -hmm. a really nice vintage Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. She'd be very interesting to interview too, I'm sure. Speaking of Beverly Hills, one of the people who live in Beverly Hills, I think we have to at least at least acknowledge this photo. There's the picture on the wall of the Hoboken Cafe of you and perhaps the most iconic, most legendary living actor, Jack 
Jack Nicholson. Oh, Jack. <laughs> What's he like to be around? Jack is Jack. You know, again, like I say, these superstars are individual. And, you know, Jack is just Jack. <laughs> How are you? You know, I'm not a good, I'm not a good impersonator. Oh, you are. You but it, it was nice getting to know Jack on a several occasions of some of these events he's been to our home. And again, meeting these guys in restaurants afterwards, you're not just, you know, walking by, hi, how are you? That, you know, they don't know who you are. Once you're in these different circles and you're, you're there all the time, you know, you become friends and you get to know these different people. Mm-hmm. So Jack was quite an interesting guy. And, you know, you never knew what was going to come out of Jack's mouth next. It was always, whether we're sitting intimately with five or six people or 20 people at a dinner table. You know, it was always a fun night. Everyone was just enjoying themselves, having a good time. He's funny. He's a funny person. Oh, yeah, he comes up with some good Mm one-liners. Very dry, very, you know, you wouldn't expect it. Some of them were off-color, of course, and funny. But you just never knew. That was the fun of being around these larger-than-life people. Uh, You know, you heard about these stories in Star Magazines and, or I should you know, all the different things you hear. But here I lived it. I heard it out of their mouths, and it was just, you know, some things are just over-the-top funny. They're stories like you had to be there when it happened for it to be funny. Those are the memories that I have Mm -hmm. today. Now, there's another picture with another iconic personality. Oh, stop already, all these iconics. We have to. We have to because our listeners and our readers. We love all the listeners. Without the listeners, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't, of course. And we respect them. That's another thing I want everyone out there to know. You're listening to something that's great. It's something wonderful. There's two individuals doing something lovely for the world because they're documenting things that are just somehow pushed to the wayside in many other circles. These two individuals here are doing such a marvelous job at something that's very well needed. And why? Because you're listening. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners and readers who are absolutely amazing. Absolutely. We have a beautiful audience, and they are interested in all of these things. And we were going to ask you about another person that we've seen a picture with, and that is Mrs. Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, really? What, I'm, I'm intrigued why, why Meryl Streep is so, so intriguing to you. Oh, she, first of all, I am a fan of her. She's admired by many people for her acting, and she's considered, you know, arguably the greatest American actress. Not only the greatest American actress, which she's just, there's so many wonderful people out there, but she really does, again, rise to the top mm-hmm. in all of the different things that she's portrayed in. The time I, I met Meryl twice, not that she would know me today so many years later, but Meryl Streep on the times that I was involved with, with her. Again, here's another individual when a fan, not myself, of course, other people, a fan walks up to her. She is as gracious as if she knew them forever. Mm-hmm. She's a real human being. She's not She's not ostentatious. What a lovely person. When I walked away from meeting her for the first time, I said, wow. And I, and I have to tell you, it's funny that you brought Meryl Streep up because I'm a fan of hers. I'm not a super fan of hers. Like, mm-hmm. And it's not like somebody I would go out of my way every yes. movie. Oh, it's just because Meryl Streep's in it. I got to go see that movie. But she left a mark on me individually as a human being, as a true caring individual Mm -hmm. and that's what shines in all of these people the things that bring bring the best out in themselves and i think that's why the fans love them so much because they get to see that they get to see that for some reason i think everybody in their own way has their way of looking at people and i think everybody has a good sonar i think people get to to feel a good vibe and when someone puts out that real vibe Mm -hmm. 
the people that get it and know how to accept that vibe continue that. They can accept it. Meryl Streep was one of those people that I was happy to have known briefly that had that. She was just an all-around beautiful individual. Mm -hmm. You could sense it. You could really sense it. And what was she doing? She was there raising money for a charity. Again, lending her her face and her name and her signature to the thousands of people that lined up to say hello to her for once and possibly the only time in their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she was there hoofing it, doing the thing that she was in the business to do mm -hmm. graciously. And you could see that she was there lovingly to do it. So that was one of my best experiences with Meryl Streep. Many years ago, quite a few years ago. Tell us about the Hoboken Cafe. How did this chapter in your life begin? You know, many people come into the restaurant today and they don't know what a Hoboken Cafe is. We're living here in Marietta, Georgia. And they walk through the door and they say, well, what is this? Well, what is a Hoboken Cafe? As a Hoboken Cafe, I says, it's a little city in, in New Jersey, the name Hoboken. And we're bringing the, the illustrious foods from that area. A lot of areas that pronounce that they have authentic stuff. We're bringing the real authentic Hoboken, New Jersey style foods to Marietta. And a lot of people say, uh, well, how did you get here from Hoboken, New Jersey? How, how do you have the Hoboken Cafe here in Marietta? As I came here by accident. <laughs> <laughs> what happened exactly? How did you just decide? It? Well, I had the Hoboken place. Cafe. It's funny you bring that up because I had the Hoboken Cafe in Las Vegas for about a two-year period. Mm -hmm. And in that two-year period, I had a lot of free time on my hands. So I opened up the cafe because I always had a love affair with food. Mm -hmm. And as I was involved with the things I was involved with in Las Vegas, having free time, Get, afforded me to do that. As I got busier again with my bodyguarding and celebrity transportation coordinating, it started to take more of my time that I didn't have as much time to put into the cafe. So I closed the cafe in Las Vegas willingly, not because I had to, but I just didn't have time to run it and have find the management to run it the way I would wanted it run. So fast forward so many years later from my Las Vegas days, here I was brought back to Marietta, where my family has resided for over 30 years, and unfortunately, uh, my mother had suffered a stroke. And at the time, uh, Frank Jr.'s career was slowing down a little bit, and our busy schedule wasn't as busy as it once was. And I had said to Frank as well, you know, my mom is a little ill right now, and I think it's time I uh, spend a little time with getting her to wherever she's going to wind up. Doctors only gave her four months to live in July of 2008, which was just her anniversary two days ago, July 8th, she suffered the stroke. Doctors gave her four months to live, and she's still with us today. That's amazing. So we took her home, and we gave her the best family care that I don't think you could find in any institution. There are great nursing homes out there and what have you, but I just think your family would give you the best care than a stranger. Those four months have turned into eight years of having her still with us, she gets along a little rough here and there because she is not able to walk anymore. But we get her out doing the same things that she did before she had the stroke. We get her out to go to dinner. We have relatives that come to visit. We take her out to see friends. So her life has only changed in the effect of that she can't walk. So that shouldn't put somebody in a, in a six by six room for the rest of their lives. So I had the fortunacy of, of having that time to do it. After the six-month period had passed, and I did go out on a couple of one-night shows with Frank Jr., I had said to Frank at the end of that period, 
I said, Frank, I think I'm going to have to retire at this point. Uh, uh, the engagements are slowing down. I see it as a good opportunity for both of us to uh, be able to continue with what we need in both of our lives. And I says, when you need me to go out on the road, I will be there when I can be, and uh, same thing. So as I decided to uproot myself from Los Angeles, and I moved back to Marietta to give my mother care, you know, understanding that she possibly may not be with us very long. I came here to take care of that, and that four-month period has turned into eight years. <laughs> so about the third year of taking care of somebody in their home, time passing, you know, you need to have something to do, and I was starting to go a little uh, stir-crazy with, you know, having such a life of jumping on airplanes every single day of the year to going abruptly to sitting in a house 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three of those years. I had said to my business partner, I said, you know what, I think it's time we open something up and, and give Marietta a taste of what it was to live in Hoboken, New Jersey, gastronomically. For years coming to Marietta, all we heard from everybody was, oh, you can't find the New Jersey Italian. You can't find the authentic Italian stuff you get up in New York City or up north. You can't find the good gourmet bread. You can't find the crusty bread. You can't find sausage. You can't find the fresh mozzarella cheese. I know how to do all of that. I learned that as a kid when I was 12 in this lovely town called Hoboken, New Jersey. So what I decided to do along with my business partner, Roger Diaz, we opened up the Hoboken Cafe and we're bringing authentic Italian foods to Marietta, Georgia. We're bringing the fresh mozzarella cheese, which is made in house. You've cheese. had it. You've oh. you've had it. It's as delicious as it'll ever be. And you make it yourself. I That's make it myself. I love to do it. Just like a singer gets out and belts songs in front of a microphone, I sink my hands into that hot water and I pull my fresh mozzarella from it being a curd into uh, this most delicious, delicate cheese called fresh mozzarella cheese, which itself has a life of its own. It's only got a one-day one availability to have the delicious milky substance that it is. Once you refrigerate it, it becomes just like the store-bought mozzarella cheese in any of the restaurants. Although it's good for five days after you make it, it doesn't have the punch and the texture and the deliciousness and the creaminess as it does when it comes out of the hot water that first 12 hours. And that's what we bring to the table. When you sit down at Hoboken Cafe on Whitlock, <laughs> you get a taste of that fresh, creamy mozzarella cheese within the first 12 hours of it being made. So uh, when you take a, a forkful of this mozzarella and the delicious cream melts in your mouth, it's just it's just over the top. And we're doing it. We just celebrated our third year. We didn't think we were going to make one year. And here we are going on to our third year. All we have is these wonderful people coming back. You know, in a restaurant business today, it's very tough. You open up in six months or a year, you know, you, you can't sustain being open because of quality uh, and your employees. There's such a turnover of employees today. You go in, you finally get comfortable with the restaurant and you get the, the the server that knows what you like. You get there the next time and they're gone. You got to retrain somebody how you want to eat. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in restaurants today. If you frequent a certain restaurant that is good, you get comfortable. It's like going to a show. You, you know what the singer is going to be singing. You know what the chef is going to be cooking. If the chef isn't there... That chef is an artist, just like a singer is an artist. I can give five people my recipe to make chicken franzese, and I guarantee you, you'll have five different chicken franzeses on that plate from the same recipe, because each individual chef is an artist. Yes. They have a technique, and I think that's where my hands-on at Hoboken Cafe here in Marietta 
brings the authentic Hoboken style because I'm at that stove every morning creating the sauces and creating the great marinara sauce that goes on the chicken parmesans. We've become famous for our meatballs. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm doing an ad here. It's so funny, Paul. No, no. We're bringing something to the plate that's not in many other establishments. We're bringing something unique. Our meatballs are just the number one selling thing at our restaurant because people keep coming back for them. Well, they must be good. That alone is just like hearing from Frank Sinatra Jr. John was the best road manager I ever had. When I hear my guests coming through the door and they see Roger and I putting our all into this restaurant and we see it coming back to us by the people returning and bringing friends and smiling and having a great experience, not only with the dining experience, but with also the food experience and the camaraderie. Now you have friends that are at one table and their neighbors are at the next table and now they start talking to each other. The next thing they're having dessert with each other. So we're bringing people together in our restaurant and that's so, so satisfying for us to witness Mm -hmm. as the owners and the people facilitating it. What do you see yourself doing in the next years? Let's say, what do you, when you close your eyes and think about the future, what do you see? I couldn't answer that. You know why? Mm -hmm. Because when I was 21 years old, I never in my life would think I'd be sitting across the table from the likes of Frank Sinatra. I never thought I'd be sitting across the table from the likes of the President of the United States. I never thought I'd be flying around in a private jet for the first time in my life when I was 21 years old. So for me to predict in my mind where I might be tomorrow, I couldn't give you an answer, let alone a year or two or three down the road, because that's what life is. It's fascinating. You don't know where it's going to bring you if you get up and get out and live it. That's what I try to share with everybody that I know. Go out and and do the best you can with life and experience it. Jackie Mason always used to say something funny. You can't be a hit in an empty building. (laughs) You need an audience. Mm -hmm. The comedians, the celebrities, the singers all need an audience. The people listening to the show are the audience. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing right now. And the same thing. If I wasn't doing the cooking, those people couldn't come into the restaurant. And those are the things that I think everyone out there that has any ambition of something that they love to do, don't say no. Go do it. Do what you love. Do what's in your heart. It's not work. When I go into that restaurant every morning, it's not work. When I went traveling around the globe, I didn't wake up every day, oh my God, I got to get on an airplane, all the security, I got to go through this. I didn't think of any of that. I said, oh great, we're getting out, we're going to go do a next show. I love doing what I do. And I think if you love what you do, You got it made. Go and grab the gold ring of your dreams. Don't think it's not capable. I'm living proof. I'm a little boy from Hoboken that came from very, very humble beginnings of parents. My father was a school teacher. My mother was a banker. We didn't have very much things as a little kid. And the life, the the, the world was outside your door. Go after it. I did, and I was able to get somewhere in life. And that's what I could share with some of our listeners. If you have something you want to do, don't be afraid. Go do it. Go learn how to do it. If you don't know how to do it, find people that know how to do it to help you get where you want to be. There you go. I have one question about that. What do you do when you're so frightened about the future, about everything that you think life will mean for you and life will bring your way? What was your, what was your solution to that, to fear? I didn't have fear. I didn't fear anything at the time. You know, again, you're 21, you're 31, you're 41. You know, you're not looking at fear. You're looking at uh, at your future. You're looking at destiny. You're looking at what can I conquer next? 
I look at a situation in previous years of my life, and I don't look and say, well, gee, you know what? I can't afford that first car. I, the first car I bought was an old you know, shebang limousine. It was 15 years old. But that one 15-year-old car that I bought, because I scraped up every last penny I had, whether, you know, I was, you know, delivering newspapers as a little kid, everything I scrimped and saved for, put into this dream of mine. And I think to this day that if I didn't take, it was $1,800, I went and bought my first limousine. If I didn't take that $1,800 that was sitting in my bank account because I saved and saved and saved for all of these years, mm -hmm. I may never have followed my dream ever. And I think if you take the first step, it's the biggest. Mm -hmm. Take it. Take it. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. If you're doing things honestly and for the good of others, there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, they throw you in the water. You got to swim. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> I jumped in the water. I wasn't thrown in. I jumped in. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good advice. <laughs> Go live, enjoy life. That's what it's all about. You know, there's there's going to be a lot of lot of hurdles for people out there, and you know things aren't so good at some points or some people in their life. You know, people have highs and lows in their life. I always remember this in the back of my mind. I kept this in the back of my mind. When you're going through hell, keep going. You'll get through it. You know, you, if it's raining today, it's not going to rain every day. You know, I look at my life, what it was then to what it is now. I have a great business. Roger and I started this business. We didn't know if it was going to take. Maybe the people here in Marietta said, what are these guys, crazy? They're Yankees. Get out of here. But they didn't. They embraced us after they realized that we were bringing something good to them. It wasn't, they were afraid. They didn't know what we were bringing. I have people to this day walk through the door. They look at my menu and I could see the fright in their eyes coming into a place and they see the sandwiches on the wall and the, and the descriptions. And I say, Hey, is it your first time here? And they say, and I know it's going to, the answer is going to be yes. And they say, yes. I said, well, come on in. Look at the menu. Don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That takes them out of their fright. You can't be afraid of life. You got to go after and conquer it. What is the best thing about being Johnny Pizza? <laughs> Somebody in Las Vegas one day, and we're driving down in a limousine on the Millennium. We're here we are, 1999, going into 2000, okay? We're in a limousine going from the New York, New York Hotel to the uh, Bellagio, where my family was staying for this this big event. We just came. We just walked out of the door from Barbra Streisand's Millennium Concert, which was absolutely over the top. Here we are in the limousine. We're in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. We could have walked from the MGM to the Bellagio in 10 minutes, but we had limousines taking everybody where they had to go. We got in the limousine. May I not get out of this interview today alive? We're in the limousine three hours going from the MGM, which we could have walked to in 10 minutes, to the Bellagio. And it just so happens all the people are uh, lined up in the streets and everyone's having a great time. New Year's Eve, the millennium, everyone was afraid the world was going to stop because all the computers were going to shut everything off. And here we are in this car and everyone's having a great time. I'm with my family. And uh, it started to get warm in the limousine because the air wasn't running at that time. And it was because the cars are stopped in traffic. And there's all these people surrounding us. So I opened up the window and people are yelling, and Happy New Year, Happy New Year. And a gentleman walking by with his girlfriend and a group of people yells over to the limousine and looks right in, right in my eyes. And he goes, hey, what do you do, man? And I says, I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a funny line. Everyone reminds me of that line to this day. Mm -hmm. What do you do, man? I says, I'm doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But what is it to be Johnny Pizza? Is that what your question was? What is great? What What's is the great? Thing, the best thing about it? Just being myself and being me and being able to be, be the person that I am to myself. 
I love who I am for myself, and I love I love to be around the people that I'm around. I think that has a lot that makes a person enjoy their life to be around the people they enjoy being around. And is it good to be me? Yeah, I've got my ups and downs. Everybody does. You know, everybody's got good things in life and, and sad things in life. And just like I say, when you're going through hell, you keep going because eventually you get out of that. And coming from the life that we've talked about this past hour was kind of amazing to me to sit here and, and just reflect on the amazing, the, the photos and the things. And like I say, each photo reminds me of a moment in my life. That's all gone. That's all yesteryear. That's, that's not going to ever happen for me again. You when, think never? When you, you well, when you say superstars and you see things that you're never going to see. Look, people grew up in the twenties, the thirties, the forties, the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, and the eighties and the nineties. None of those eras ever repeated themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like lightning in a bottle. You capture it when it happens. All right. My life was lightning in a bottle for those years we are talking about. I'm living a different life today. It's I planted a new seed and it's growing. It's a new tree now. That that little Hoboken Cafe was a little seed three years ago. It's now a tree. It's becoming something. And whether it continues or if I decide to put the key in the door tomorrow is a decision I will make someday. But as long as I'm enjoying it, as long as I'm bringing something good to the world and to the people that are enjoying it, I continue to do it. When it becomes too hard to do, then you stop. And I think that's with anything in life. But I don't say life is over because of those years are over. It was a fascinating time to live. But the future is, is what it's going to be. We have to live it first. <laughs> who is Johnny Pizza at heart? At heart, just I, again, I, I said earlier, I just, who is Johnny Pizza? Johnny Pizza is a guy that came from very quiet beginnings in Hoboken, New Jersey, and made good for himself. Had highs and lows and, uh, you know, made the best of the, the lows and made the best of the highs. And the Johnny Pizza that I know is a, a guy that tries to do good for everybody, tries to bring goodness to every surrounding. Anything I could try and do, I try to help people and I try to, I try to be the, the person you dream of being. If I have a chance to help somebody, I'm happy to do that. I'm not the type of person that gets thrilled on not helping people. I'm happy if I can if I can bring somebody a little joy to themselves. It's a great place to be, you know. And I learned that from my parents. I learned that from Sinatra. I learned that from Jilly Rizzo. I learned that from a lot of the people that I was around in my entertainment years. People that went through their lives dreaming, never thinking they have their dream come true. I was able to witness these other larger than life people facilitate opening up a door for those people on a large scale. If I can do that for people on a smaller scale, I get the same gratification. If I can do something to help somebody, I do it. I'm very, very glad that Terry Woodson said those two words. Johnny Pizza. <laughs> Thank you very much. Excuse me, Terry Woodson, take a bow. <laughs> Terry Woodson, the conductor for Frank Sinatra Jr. for all those years I was with him. God, I can't begin to tell the story about Terry Woodson and I's relationship. What a kind human being, a kind soul. Uh, you know, when you say, there's certain people that you mention their name and a smile just comes across your face. Mm-hmm. Terry Woodson is one of those people. Al Martino is one of those people. Jilly Rizzo, for me, is one of those people. My parents are those people. You know, there's a lot of people out there that you know um you know you, you think about them and you just say uh enough <laughs> one second is enough of a thought but those uh, larger than life people that i got to know 
you think about the things that nobody else knows about them and the things that they did to help people that you'll never, ever know I know about. And that makes me happy being who I am. Beautiful. Thank you very much, sir. Pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, guys. I'm so happy to be here with you today. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.